You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Three-time Paralympian Patty Cisneros-Prevo, who won two gold medals as part of the National Women's Wheelchair Basketball Team and is a disability advocate focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, has published a new children's book called Tenacious, 15 Adventures Alongside Disabled Athletes. She is on a book tour now and will be signing copies at the Hartford Nationals on Sunday, July 9th in Birmingham, Alabama. Let's chat with her. So, Patty, I thought we would just start uh, by me asking you to tell me a little bit about yourself and about growing up. Yeah, thank you, Sean, and thank you for having me on your podcast. So, Patty Cisneros-Prevo, I use pronouns she, her, and ella. Oh, wow, growing up. So, I have a very large Mexican Catholic family. I have nine brothers and sisters, (laughs) five boys, four girls, including me, so five and five. Um, and I just, yeah, 50, 50, (laughs) who knew, um, had a really great childhood. I mean, I was very active, involved in a lot of sports, always had a play date. So never had to worry about that because of all the siblings (laughs) in my family. Um, and it was great. I started my sports career fairly early in third, second, third grade. Um, I had a PE teacher who, you know, I have to give credit to for um, getting our family involved in sports. But I ran cross country early on and was on like the junior Olympic team. Um, I ran in the AAU conference. I don't know what they call it anymore, but Mm -hmm. very competitive runner um, and played basketball, did cross country and track. And and so that's where it kind of blossomed into or I started blossoming into an athlete. And, and so were all of were all or most of your siblings involved in active in sports? Yes, yes, and we're all very competitive with each other. <laughs> I mean, you can't have like ten people in a family and not be competitive with each other. So, but everyone sort of excelled in their own sports. Um, my brothers were uh, wrestlers, so they didn't do basketball. You know, it's during the same season. Um, great wrestlers in the family. My sister actually got a scholarship to wrestle at Missouri Valley College. Um, My brother wrestled at Minnesota State, Division II school in Minnesota, I don't know, for wrestling. And so, yes, everybody was very active um, in different sports. Um, My sister, she, my older sister, she also did track and field, but she used to be a race walker. So she was like top 10 in the nation at one point when we were younger as a race walker. So yes, all of us very active in sports and very competitive within our sports and each other. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how about, uh, like your, your, the parental side, were they involved in sports or did it just, uh, start with the siblings? Um, no, not really. I mean, I think my dad played softball when he, so my dad, it was an immigrant um, from Mexico and he did play softball here. And I think he coached for like a year. I, I can't even picture my dad doing that, which is funny, but there are pictures that I've seen that proves that he did this. And I'm always like, you know, softball and you know, it's funny. Um, 
And yeah, my mom wasn't very much, she wasn't an athlete, I don't think, back in the day. I mean, you know, they don't talk about it, so I'm just assuming that they were not. Um, And that time, obviously, was a little bit different also culturally. You know, my mom was very much raised to be a mother and a housekeeper, um, and my dad was raised to be, you know, the man of the family and um, the worker, the provider. So, you know, we grew up differently culturally than people um, in, in the States do. Yeah. Well, and, but I, I would say the States went through that period of time too, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. You're right. You're right. It wasn't, it wasn't unique necessarily. I mean, it was a different time uh, altogether, right. I think. So <laughs> yeah, and, just, you know, you got that sprinkling of the Mexican culture, which the, the dynamic of like woman and man is a bit, you know, I don't know if I'd say stronger, but it's definitely a little more pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. And so where do you think that competitive drive came from? Um, you know, I think just my, my, my mom's family, my uncles were also wrestlers and I think just her, the Escobedo side, um, it, they're just very competitive people in general. And so I think that trickled over to my mom, um, very inadvertently. I don't, I just don't see my mom being very competitive, but I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I think she can be, she can be, uh, she was a fierce cheerleader and a fierce advocate for us while we competed. Um, she always wanted to win. So I guess, yeah, I would say my mom's side of the family for sure. And so how did you get introduced to adaptive sports? Yeah. So I was in a car accident when I was 18. So I was a freshman at Indiana university. Um, And, you know, random, out of the blue car accident, we lost control on the shoulder. It was only a one car accident. My sister's friend was driving and she was in the passenger seat and we just lost control on the shoulder. Um, You know, went down a ditch, flipped over, did all that. And so when I was doing my rehab after I had acquired my spinal cord injury, my physical therapist had done some history on me and or some research on me and, and found that I had a history of sports. And so that was sort of the, the catalyst for the conversation around adaptive sports. She's like, you know, that you can still play wheelchair basketball. You can still do wheelchair racing. You can still do all of these things with your disability. And so, you know, at the time I had this gigantic back brace on. It was terrible. It was uncomfortable. Um, And I was like, hell no, I'm not doing any sports. I can't even move. I'm like sitting in this wheelchair. I have this back brace on. Um, But she had somebody come. uh, His name was Tony Williams. He has now passed away, but he made a huge, huge impression on me, had a huge impact on my life. And it's kind of funny because I later on in life, I played against him a few times, which was (laughs) extraordinary, you know, Um, But he came to the rehab hospital and he, there was like an outdoor basketball court and he showed me wheelchair basketball. You know, he brought his ball chair, he came in pushing it, which I was like, what? My mind was just blown because here I'm, I'm still learning how to transfer from my wheelchair to a mat, putting on Mm -hmm. my clothes and doing the very, very early things in rehab. And he came in pushing his day chair and his ball chair. Um, he transferred into his ball chair with no brakes. And I'm just like, you know, you think about that, like a little emoji with the brain, uh, explosion. That's how I was the entire time he was there. And so, 
Um, he showed me, you know, he was shooting baskets. He was uh, going in circles and he did all of these things. And it just made such an impact on me. And I will forever be grateful for that time. And so um, once I was transferred back to my parents' place, so they live in Northwest Indiana, um, I did my outpatient rehab there and I learned about the Chicago programs and that's how I got involved um, on both the women's team. And then I learned about the Paralympics. Hmm. And and so obviously um, having the, the track and cross country background, you you didn't consider that you consider you went you decided wheelchair basketball instead. You know, that's funny you ask. Um, I tried a racing chair and it was so uncomfortable because, you know, they sit on their legs and it's like, I don't know, it's so tight. So I get a lot of leg spasms. And at the time, you know, I was so new in my disability and it just was very uncomfortable for me. And I didn't, you know, obviously I've learned how to sort of adapt your body to the equipment to make it more comfortable for the areas that you don't have as much feeling or sensation. And so, you know, early on, I was just like, oh, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't fit. I don't like this. And in basketball, it was, you know, I really enjoyed the team camaraderie and that chemistry and that like sisterhood prior to my accident. So I think it was just a natural transition because I was like yearning to be around other women who were also in chairs. I just needed that community. So I think that's why I ended up um, following wheelchair basketball, which which is a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that. You know, Sean, I have like since my retirement from wheelchair basketball, um, because of my, my background in running, I mean, I was an avid runner. I had some scholarships to go t- um, and, and um, compete on, you know, collegiate wheelchair, or not wheelchair, uh, cross country teams, but I ended up picking Indiana University because my sister was there. Um, and I had an academic scholarship. I wasn't fast enough to run D1, but I was smart enough to get <laughs> some academic scholarships. But anyway, you know, after I retired from wheelchair basketball, I was like, you know what, I want to give this wheelchair racing thing another shot. And so since then, I've, you know, I don't compete. I don't time myself. I want it to be sort of like a, a self-care type of exercise. I want to go out, be in nature, enjoy being on the road like I used to in my able in my non-disabled days. And I've done a couple of marathons and um, maybe four or five half marathons. So it did come back just like 25 years later. <laughs> and you're able to do it just for fun. Which yep, is, which just is for important. fun. I don't time myself because I don't want it to be competitive. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, wheelchair basketball was the, a good choice for you because now you have three Paralympics uh, under your belt and two gold medals. So that worked out, right? It did. It did. And I'm so grateful for that time and all of the incredible people I've met along my journey and all the places that I've traveled to. And of those three Paralympics, do you have a, your, I guess, a favorite or or a unique one that stood out to you? Yeah. Um, 2004 Athens, Greece was definitely, of all three, was my favorite. And that's because up until those games, we kept losing to Canada. I mean, we would, you know, have these like smaller tournaments, uh, Paralympic qualifiers, world championships. And we just, you know, they always found a way to beat us in that fourth quarter. And I think 
you know, the core of us, we were like determined. We're, we were like, there's no way Canada is going to beat us anymore. And in 2004 in pool play, we actually lost our first game to Australia. And we're all like, dang it. Like, this is not going to happen. We're not going to choke. We're not going to come in here on the biggest stage and not do what we were meant to do. Um, and so we ended up winning all of our games in our pool, pay, pool play, crossed over. I don't remember who we had in the quarterfinals, but then matched up with Canada in the semifinal. So potentially Canada could have knocked this off into the bronze medal game, or um, we could have finally, you know, conquered that, that, uh, that, that beast that I don't know <laughs> that that thing that was in our way for so many years. I mean, I'm talking about like four or five years of Canada mm -hmm. just beating us. And um, yeah, we, we beat them in the semifinal, which was our first like major uh, victory against them in, in quite a few years. And so went on to match up with Australia again in the gold medal game this time. And we beat them. So most definitely it was Athens. It was such an incredible experience. And then to win the first gold medal was really, really special. I think defending a gold medal is also special, but it's very difficult. You know, like every, you have a huge bullseye on your back. Mm -hmm. And so there's a different sort of focus. Whereas Athens is like, we're here to win and we're tired of losing. And we did it. <laughs> Well, and the, yeah, the feeling of breaking through that wall of being yes. able to finally, finally get over that hump and win, win against the rival is, is a big yes. deal. <laughs> but totally. in 2008, you were a, a captain of the team there too. So not only were you defending a gold medal, but you, you, you were captain of the team. How was that like? Yeah, it was stressful. <laughs> it was stressful. I mean, you know, you're, you're navigating a lot. You're navigating like your teammates and their dynamics. You're navigating coaching. Um, you're navigating like being in a different country and acclimating to that country. Um, and you know that everybody's out to get you. Everybody's out to beat you because you are the defending gold medalist. So, um, yeah, it was great. I mean, I felt like after we won gold in Beijing, it was a, a relief. It was like, I could take a deep breath. Whereas like, Athens was more exhilarating and we're, you know, we conquered the beast and we were super excited. And then Beijing was like, whew, we did it. Okay. We defended, we defended our gold and we're good. <laughs> so it's so, definitely different. Maybe more stress in 2008 than 2004 then, huh? <laughs> so much more stress. <laughs> and, and one of the things I've always been intrigued about, Patty, is uh, you play professionally, obviously in Europe. And, you know, I've asked a couple other uh, uh, wheelchair uh, basketball players, both on the men's and women's side, uh, how we don't have this opportunity in the United States. Uh, and so what was it like to be able to play professionally over in Europe? Yeah, that's a hard question. That's like a podcast in itself. Like, <laughs> how come we don't have it here? But mm -hmm. um, playing overseas is incredible. I mean, they have people who are legitimately genuinely fans of wheelchair basketball and in the states it's more like you know your mom comes and your cousins or friends and family members come to watch you and in europe it, it's people um come in droves just to watch you play because they like the sport and that was the biggest difference i mean that was very like a a, a culture difference um to to play in a stadium where there's thousands of fans 
um, well, hundreds. Our bigger games had thousands, but hundreds of fans there just to see the game because the team that I played on, Londell, um, had such an incredible history. They were very successful. They had, I mean, power players like Pat Anderson and Joey Johnson um, and Bear from Canada playing on their teams. And then they also had like powerhouses um, from Germany, Dirk, um, you know, uh, uh, Gunner. I'm, I'm forgetting all their last names. I'm just using their first names. But, you know, they wanted to see these players in actions. And I just had the incredible opportunity to be able to play on Londell for that one season. Mm. That's that's awesome. Yeah, and we went undefeated. We yeah. won three cups. I mean, we <laughs> kicked ass. I don't know if I can say this on the podcast, but I just did. We dominated, and it was incredible. I don't have a bleeping mechanism, okay. so <laughs> <laughs> you have to go back and edit. <laughs> that's right. And and then in addition to the player side, you did you transitioned into some coaching, uh, and I think you coached for what. One or two university, two two different collegiate teams. So I, I only coached one collegiate team. That was the University of Illinois, and I actually did that right before I went to Germany. So mm. I coached um, 2007 to 2009, um, and I was actually the first uh, women's coach, head coach at the University of Illinois. So before then, Mike Frogley had both programs, mm -hmm. and then Brad Hedrick had both programs. And so I was the first one to sort of help with the split. And that was really hard. I mean, you don't fill Mike Frogley's shoes easily. And I certainly did not. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was a bit of a struggle with the pl players. You know, you, you need to earn their trust and their respect and, um, want to play for you. They all got recruited to play for Mike Frogley, not me. And so, you know, it was, it was a difficult transition, but because I was given such an incredible team, like my first year, we, we did win that national championship at the university of Illinois, my first year, and then got runner up the second year that I was there. So, um, it was great, but I, I, I think I wasn't done playing and I had this opportunity to play in Germany. So, I, you know, left coaching at Illinois, went to play in Germany, and then I came back um, and I uh, played for the Denver Nuggets for one year. We won the championship that year. And then I sort of, you know, I, I can't even remember my own timeline, but I did coach <laughs> the LA Sparks. It was a new team. They asked me to play or coach and I did that. And then when I moved out to Wisconsin, I I coached the Lady Bucks, so the Milwaukee team out of Wausau. Um, I I coached them for two years and won a championship. And that's when I finally retired. I was like, I got to stop doing this Brett Favre thing of like retiring and coming back, retiring and coming back. And so I finally retired after that championship with the Lady Bucks out of Milwaukee. Of course, you had to make a Brett Favre reference if you're in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know if I like this guy, but you know, just to, <laughs> to provide a, a a metaphor for my a reference life. or a metaphor, yeah, exactly, <laughs> metaphor. exactly. Well, I know that you've been uh, a big disability advocate, and and one of the things that I'd love to talk to you about is um, and what in terms of what that means and how that's evolved um, from you know even just the time that you may have started in this space to now. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think that I wasn't always a disability advocate. You know, when I first got injured. Um, because I was operating out of the medical model of disability, I fought so hard to be independent. Mm 
and fought so hard to differentiate myself between uh, from like the disabled community. Like I wasn't that disabled and I wasn't that kind of disability. So harmful. And, you know, even, <laughs> even to this day, there's some guilt and there's some shame. But through that journey um, as an athlete and once retiring, I really learned more about the oppressive system of ableism. You know, it's just another ism, oppressive system against individuals who have marginalized identities. And in this case, it's the disabled community. And I had to do my own learning. I had to like really unlearn and relearn certain things about myself and kind of confront and face the internalized ableism that I had, um, you know, taken in all of those years of my life as a disabled person, as a wheelchair user. And so, you know, you you don't know what you don't know. So I had this opportunity. I I do know now. Okay. Now I'm, (laughs) I'm, I did a lot of harmful things. I said a lot of harmful stuff, but now I have this opportunity to change course. And so that's when I felt like I really wanted to use my platform to do good for the community. Um, and that really was what sparked Tenacious, my my forthcoming picture book, my debut picture book. I wanted to highlight disability in a positive light. Um, and I also wanted to avoid you know, and perpetuate like ableism and these super, super crip tropes and these like inspirational porn ideas. Like I wanted to do it right. And I wanted to do it right by the community because I also felt like maybe this is my way of making amends to, to the, you know, sort of the harm that I've created. And, you know, whether that had a ripple effect, I have no idea, but this was an opportunity for me to sort of like you know, change that course. And so I, you know, I hope that I serve as a disability advocate. Um, you know, I feel like that's that's a word that others have to give you or bestow on you. Um, and so I hope that I am um, helping change the course and helping people understand that ableism is a very pervasive and prevalent oppressive system in our society that doesn't um, get as much attention uh, as the other isms. And and we have to make sure that we're doing the work to dismantle that. And and you mentioned a couple, I mean, I know that uh, hopefully in, in this space, folks know what ableism is, but if if folks may not be familiar with what that looks like or what that means, how do you define ableism? Yeah, you know, very basically, it's the, the discrimination and or prejudice against people with disabilities. And um, there is an activist by the name of T.L. Lewis. Uh, they are a Black, queer, disabled person. And they define ableism or, you know, they have a very lengthy work in progress definition of ableism. But one of the key parts that I find very fascinating is that you don't have to be disabled to experience ableism. And so I think that's important. You know, when I when I talk about ableism just very broadly, it's the discrimination against our community, our disabled community, the prejudices, the stereotypes, the microaggressions that we face day in, day out. Um, And so wanting people, you know, that's such a good point, Sean, like having people, one, understand what that definition is and then how we 
use it every day. Just little things that we say that are very ableist, the ableist language, the culture is so pervasive. You know, I'll give you an example. How many times have we said, like, when we can't find something, we say, oh gosh, I'm so blind. You know, like minimizing the experiences of blind individuals because you can't find something. Or if like you can't hear something, you're like, oh God, I'm so deaf. Like that is so harmful for the community. And I apologize if someone hears that and they find that offensive. I I just wanted to provide an example. But those are like things that we have to move away from because it is sort of trivializing and, and minimizing those experiences of people that have those disabilities and and they can't just say it and then leave it. You know, they, those are those um, experiences that they have every single day. And so we shouldn't equate like a, a, a flippant comment like that um, about things that uh, we don't need, we don't mean to say, like, let's say what we're trying to say, like, oh, I can't find this or, oh, I didn't hear you say that. Um, very different. Yeah. And, and then the other uh, kind of terminology that maybe people aren't familiar with that you use that I, I wanted to uh, hash out a little bit more because I have uh, I hear examples of it all the time. It's it's the super crypt uh, trope that you talked about. And so uh, I'd love for you to kind of explain that in a second, because because uh, I also, you know, have I just had an example uh, yesterday afternoon about about how that came into play. So I'd love to just yeah. hear your thoughts first, though. Yeah, you know, I feel like Super Crip is like equating disabled people as superheroes. Like we're doing things that are um, unnatural or superhuman to do. And quite frankly, we're just regular people who have disabilities and we just accomplish extraordinary things. It doesn't make us superheroes. Um, And not everybody who is disabled uh, needs to excel. You know, we don't want to put out the message that, well, if you're disabled, then you need to be winning gold medals at the Paralympics. Like that's not, that's not the case. Um, the people that I have in tenacious, you know, I really wanted to make it clear that they're not superheroes, that they are just disabled individuals who have accomplished extraordinary things. Just like you have non-disabled people let's say Michael Phelps, the swimmer, because everybody knows Michael Phelps, Mm -hmm. Um, Simone Biles, they're ordinary people, non-disabled who have accomplished extraordinary things. And so just because we've done these things and we have disabilities doesn't make us, you know, superhuman or superheroes or the super crypt trope because, um, because of our disability. That's how people are using it. Like, oh, you can only do this because you're disabled and you're extraordinary, you know? Um, And hopefully I explained that well enough. Um, And I just wanted to really push the message that uh, we're disabled people and we've also done incredible things in our lives. Right. And, and I think in, in the space of adaptive sports and sports in general, that's, that's a perfect place to have that conversation because um, just because someone has a disability it's not special for them to be able to play a sport. Exactly. You know, sport exactly. is a universal right, you know, that, that Dr. Mary Helms will, will tell, you know, that will tell you, and 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 sport is a human right. So right. Uh, just because 
I play sports and I have a disability, for example, uh, you know, doesn't make me special or unique. And an example I had just yesterday, I work a lot with media, obviously. And so I always cringe when I hear um, a a journalist or reporter talking about, you know, an inspiring story just for an individual (laughs) with a disability uh, who wants and can and does play sports. I mean, that, that, you know, that is not an inspiring story. (laughs) Right. And it's so, so inspiration, inspire, gosh, that's so controversial and tricky in our community. Mm -hmm. I think that if used appropriately, and used by the def as the definition, then it's fine. But oftentimes, because there's disability intersecting what they're writing about, that it's then patronizing. It's like, oh, you're so inspirational. You know, when I get that comment when I'm grocery shopping and people tell me I'm inspirational, that's crap. Like, I'm not inspiring you to get your groceries. <laughs> You're saying that I'm inspirational because I'm disabled getting groceries. There's nothing inspirational about that. Now, if you tell me I'm inspirational by winning gold medals, like that inspires you then to go out and train for a marathon or um, get on a, a weightlifting regimen, like that's different. That's you're using the definition of inspire, but you know, it, it's such a tricky line balance right. because they're saying it, uh, because you're disabled, like they're, they're using it as, as a form of, um, you know, it feels very patronizing to me. I agree. And it's just thrown out like just nonchalantly, right? Like right. here's an inspiring story. You know, wh- wh- how do you know? <laughs> how do you, right. how do you right. know it is? I mean, if, if it truly is inspirational, I mean, if it inspires another individual, maybe with a disability who's not thought about participating in sport that, you know, then that, that makes sense. But yeah, it's, it's, but usually, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but your thought, but usually that's written for a non-disabled audience, right? You know? And so that's the big difference. Exactly. Well, you mentioned your book a couple of times and I want to spend some time talking about it, obviously, uh, tenacious 15 adventures alongside disabled athletes. Uh, which is which is out now, and um, what what encouraged you or inspired you to write a book? Yeah, I don't know, Sean. I'm <laughs> sometimes sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it, and then I just do it. So um, you know, all joking aside, when I was an elementary teacher, so I used to teach um, grades fourth grade, fifth grade, and I was a new parent. Um, I was always up to date on the latest children's literature. I mean, I I was looking at children's literature for um, my profession and also with my kids. We would go to story time. We frequented the library all the time. And I was like, where where are the disabled characters? Like, there are no books that I can find easily or readily that have disabled characters. And so then I started... um, doing a very intentional search, like how many books have disabled characters? And it's very, very, very few. And so I just kind of took it upon myself, like, I'm going to write this book. And a very, you know, maybe arrogant or naive, I don't know. I was like, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to self-publish it and it's going to do well. And people need to know about these individuals that I want to write about. Um, the The book has taken on so many revisions and iterations. It started as um, just moms. So people who are disabled, but also 
mothers, not not fathers. I was very, <laughs> I was very exclusive. Um, because I wanted it to sort of mirror where I was in my life at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did everything that I possibly could. I mean, I really took this writing as as I did with my athletics. Like I joined writing groups and writing critique groups and I went to conferences and I did the research and I joined, you know, different societies for children book authors and illustrators. And I was doing all of the things and I was very set like, I'm going to call this book Playdate, which is silly now thinking about that. Um, and it was going to be about disabled moms and our stories of our kids and yada, yada, yada. And the more critiques that I attended, the more people are like, these people are awesome. Why don't you just write about the people and like remove the parent element? I'm like, no, I want to, this is my story. This is what I want. And, you know, one of the pieces of advice that I got along the way was like, if you hear something over and over and over, you really have to pause and think about what they're saying and make those edits. So then I finally had this like, moment where I heard it again. And I was like, you know what, maybe they're right. These are all experienced authors, writers. I am like the rookie of the rookies of the bunch and I need to listen. And so, um, so then I focused on just the individuals and their athletic accomplishments and their stories and, um, how they became disabled or how they acquired their disability. And I really gained a lot of traction. And so another rookie move I made is I got on um, the Society for Children book Writers and Illustrators. It's S-C-B-W-I. And I started just like sort of Googling all of these illustrators. And this is like, this is kind of funny because it's like, you know, emailing Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan or (laughs) LeBron James and being like, can you teach me how to shoot a free throw? So then I started emailing all of these illustrators. <laughs> I spent hours doing this and being like, here's my book. It's going to be great. Will you illustrate it? Didn't know anything about the the um, industry. I mean, you know, most of these illustrators have an agent who mm-hmm. then do the work for them. So whatever. But I met uh, my now mentor, her name is Dow. She has illustrated and written a ton of books, New York bestseller. She's she's a big deal. And again, asking Michael Jordan, hey, will you teach me how to shoot free throws? She took the time and really convinced me to consider traditional publishing. She's like, I know that you want to self-publish. You don't want to change. You know, you don't want anybody to change the idea of your book but I really think that this book is needed in the industry. And, and that, that was it. So I, I started submitting, getting rejected, submitting, getting rejected, that whole cycle that you hear so many writers go through. And I landed on the contest of new voices from Lee and Lowe. I got the runner-up prize. Um, so I wasn't guaranteed a contract, but when I spoke to the editorial director, she was like, we really love this idea and we want to offer you a contract. So um, that's how it all happened. It was such a messy, beautiful journey, but, um, I'm really thankful that tenacious and actually it has not officially come out yet. It comes out June 27th. So, um, less than a week. And, um, I know that you're, you have a book tour scheduled and, and people can find, uh, that schedule on your website. Um, and, you're coming to the Hartford Nationals in, in Birmingham. How do people uh, get the book and or connect with you uh, uh, via your website or other social or even social media? 
Yeah, uh, just just like that. Like my website is pattycisnettosprevo.com. So it's all three names. Um, I have everything listed in there for my book tour. So all of the stops, the information, the tickets, everything's free with the exception of the ALA conference coming up here in Chicago. Um, you know, the times that I'll start, um, I will sign books everywhere I go. Um, there'll be books a, able to purchase everywhere I go. And then if you follow me on social media, I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I don't do Twitter because, you know, Twitter is Twitter right now. <laughs> I'll leave that out of the podcast. But um, and actually, I have my niece, Alejandra. She is running my TikTok account because I can't do TikTok, Sean. I don't know. I don't understand it. <laughs> so I'm actually, she, I've hired her as my TikTok social media manager. And so she runs my TikTok account too. So you can find me on all of them. If you search for Patty Cisnettos Prevo, any of those combinations, Patty Prevo, Patty Cisnettos, it should come up. 